The familiar drone of aircraft gradually intruded itself into Marcos Macoro's consciousness. The 22-year-old coast artilleryman, with dark-skinned hair and eyes, stood with the 155-millimeter guns in Battery Morrison on a hill overlooking the channel separating Bataan Peninsula from Corregidor Island. He looked up as the aircraft appeared, shading his eyes from the midday sun, and saw a large V-shaped formation of Japanese bombers and Zero fighter planes. It was an impressive sight, and Marcos pitied the people who would be the target of such a large formation. Around him, other servicemen ran to higher, less tree-covered ground to get a better view of the planes and perhaps their target. What do you think they're going after today? A fellow private asked. Cavite again? Or maybe Manila even? Maybe the Japanese haven't heard the military's leaving the city and want to destroy it. Marcos shrugged. To him, the planes didn't seem to be headed toward Manila. Perhaps they were going to Bataan? His private friend seemed to mistake his silence for concern. Not to worry though, Makoro. This is the rock. If they dared attack us, they won't get much. Even our barracks are bombproof. But as the other man spoke, Marcos could see the planes weren't headed for Bataan or Cavite or Manila. No, that large V formation was heading his way. The planes broke into smaller groups, increased their speed, and started their runs over Corregidor Island. Shrill whistling filled the air as 225 and 500 pound bombs fell to earth, exploding on impact and sending shrapnel flying. Men who had sought a better look now scrambled for cover. Marcus ran for the battery's thick concrete shelter, covering his ears which were ringing with the bomb's heavy concussions. The Japanese fighter planes swooped down, strafing any visible servicemen and other targets. To Marcos, the planes were so low, they seemed on level with the treetops. But the Filipino and U.S. forces on Corregidor Island weren't about to let this pass without a fight. Marcos heard the Corregidor anti-aircraft guns come to life with their pop, 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 as fired rounds attempted to hit the high-altitude bombers. Overhead, an impact, an explosion, and then a bomber whined as it plummeted to the sea. Servicemen manning 50 caliber machine guns fired at the low-flying fighter planes, sending several into the water as well. Two hours later, the final bomber's now distant specks on the Philippine horizon Marcos emerged from his shelter. The air was eerily quiet as he surveyed the damage. Turns out, Corregidor Island was not bombproof. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather, Alma Salm, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you appreciate this podcast and believe it's important for people to know this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing it with a friend. Word of mouth is the main way people find new podcasts, and by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. 
In this episode, we're crossing from Bataan Peninsula to Corregidor Island and stepping back in the war timeline a bit to the first weeks of World War II on the island fortress. We'll meet a Filipino father and son who served in the same coast artillery unit on the island before and during the war. Helping me tell their story is Jesse Makoro, who is the son and grandson of these two men. So without further ado, let's jump in. Vicente Macoro was born in May 1886 on the small, picturesque island of Biliran, which is nestled in the southern half of the Philippine archipelago. A mountainous island, Biliran has largely relied on fishing for its economy, as well as rice production in its lowlands. This island, which lies just one kilometer off the shore of Leyte, the Philippines' eighth largest island, was home to a population of around 20,000 souls at the time of Vicente's birth. Like most of the inhabitants, Vicente's family was devoutly Catholic. In November 1910, 24-year-old Vicente, who stood at 5 feet 5 inches with brown skin and eyes and black hair, gave up a teaching career and enlisted in the United States Army. At that time, as you may recall, the Philippines was already a colony of the United States. Now I have very few details about Vicente's early years in the army. He obviously served during World War I, but I do not believe he left the Philippine Islands, although later newspapers describe him as a World War I veteran. By 1919, Vicente had married a Filipina named Bernardina Paliete and was living in the city of Angeles, located about 52 miles or 84 kilometers northwest of Manila on Luzon Island, which is the Philippines' largest island. I suspect the Macoros lived in Angeles because it was close to Fort Stotzenberg and the adjoining Clark Field, which were large U.S. Army locations at the time. The couple's son, Marcos Macoro, was born there on June 29, 1919. Roughly five years later, in July 1924, the U.S. Army created the 91st Coast Artillery as part of the Philippine Scout Units. The Philippine Scouts were U.S. Army units made up of highly trained Filipino servicemen with American officers. Vicente became part of this unit, joining Battery A, which was assigned to Fort Mills on Corregidor Island. Fort Mills had been built as part of the United States coastal defenses of Manila Bay. Corregidor Island sits within the roughly 12-mile-wide entrance to Manila Bay. The island is four miles long and roughly one mile wide at its widest point. It's shaped like a tadpole swimming, with a rough circle on one end that would be the head, and it's about one to one and a half miles in diameter. Then it has a skinny tapering tail that juts off to one end, and that's about two and a half to three miles long. I've put some images and maps of Corregidor on Facebook and Instagram so that you can see what it looks like. I suggest taking a look because we will be on Corregidor Island for the next several episodes. The island's head faces out of Manila Bay and into the South China Sea. The tail end points into the bay. To the island's north is the southern coast of Bataan Peninsula and it's separated by a channel about two miles wide. To the south of Corregidor is about eight or nine miles of open bay entrance that is dotted with a few smaller islands that help protect the bay as well. 
We'll talk about those other islands in future episodes because they've got some interesting stories. Positioned as it is, Corregidor was a prime candidate for coastal defenses. And starting in the mid-1910s, the U.S. Army began fortifying the island with artillery to fend off any approaching naval enemies. And actually, Corregidor had been an important bay defense well before the United States took control of the islands, as Spanish colonial leaders also saw and utilized its strategic importance. The island fort, which the servicemen came to call The Rock, is divided into three sections, topside, middleside, and bottomside. Topside and middleside were both located in the tadpole head portion of the island. This area was at a higher elevation, with steep cliffs and ravines dropping into Manila Bay. Middleside is on a slightly lower plateau than topside. In time, these areas came to include officers' quarters and enlisted barracks, a hospital, a movie theater, a couple of schools, numerous gun batteries, underground army headquarters, a fortified communication center, also underground, and a golf course for the officers. There's a large drop in elevation where the tadpole head portion connects to the tadpole tail portion. This connection point is at sea level and is called bottom side. This bottom side area is a flat, narrow section of land. There was a small town at bottom side, as well as a couple of docks so that naval and other ships could dock on both the north and south sides of bottom side. Next, the island slopes up again to Malinta Hill. Inside this hill, the U.S. Army created a system of labyrinth-like tunnels, appropriately called the Malinta Tunnel. These tunnels cut through the base of the hill with a main tunnel running east to west and had multiple branches off that main tunnel. By the start of World War II, this tunnel system had a hospital as well as headquarters and barracks for various military branches. The remaining couple miles of the tail beyond Malinta Hill are hilly with beaches and jungle. It included a small airstrip and had a few gun batteries. On November 6, 1937, Vicente's 18-year-old son, Marcos, enlisted as a private in Vicente's unit, Battery A, 91st Coast Artillery. Vicente's grandson, Jesse Macoro, told me. At the time, it was a sergeant. I think we're one of the few who had a father and son uh, in a unit. I read that sergeants and the Philippine scouts were responsible for recruitment, so perhaps Vicente saw Marcos's potential and encouraged him to enlist. Young Marcos was 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed 115 pounds. He had attended high school for three years. Marcos's son Jesse recalled. Before the war, he was in high school and he uh, ran track. That's one thing I remember from talking to him. And he liked to play in a band. He was a drummer at the time before he went into service. In the U.S. Army, artillery units are called batteries, which is the equivalent to a company in infantry and other units. The battery grouping of men is also responsible for a specific group or grouping of artillery pieces, which is also called a battery. As a single enlisted man, Marcos lived in barracks on Corregidor's Middleside area with his fellow battery members. A new private, Marcos received training on small arms, beach defense maneuvers, machine guns, and the larger artillery guns slash cannons. The various batteries of the 91st Coast Artillery held annual target practice competitions, complete with a coveted trophy. 
I haven't discovered whether Battery A ever won the trophy, but a later newspaper called Vicente an expert marksman and rifleman. Jesse Makoro has had opportunities to retrace his father and grandfather's steps on that island. I got a chance to visit Corregidor in 2012 and 2018, and I went to the same barrack where he lived, where the 91st Artillery Group were stationed at. I got to see the artillery pieces and all that. In the years before World War II, Battery A had three responsibilities. Lay and operate the minefields surrounding Corregidor, maintain that mine equipment, and man the artillery guns in Battery Morrison, which was located on the northern side of the island's head. Corregidor had more than a dozen physical batteries, the majority of them located on the island's head. Battery A was part of the Submarine Mine Command, which was tasked with planting mines in the channels north and south of Corregidor Island to help protect Manila Bay's entrance. The Army's minefields were made up of controlled mines rather than contact mines. This meant that mines were manually operated from a remote point, although they could be set to explode on contact. Historian George Munson wrote, The mine casemate was located in James Ravine, it contained the switches for detonating the mines. Minefields were observed from a control station. They had a grid of the minefields with locations of all the different mines. As an enemy ship passed over the fields, they would relay the location to personnel in the mine casemate who would throw the switches to detonate the mines. The minefields facilitated the defense of Corregidor from surprise attacks from fishing boats and disguised merchant ships. Battery A worked from June through August 1941 to install these minefields. Corregidor Island was not one of Japan's primary targets during the first weeks of World War II. Vicente and Marcos experienced their first air raid siren on December 8th, the day Japan first attacked the Philippines, but no enemy planes appeared over the island and no bombs dropped. While Japan fought their way toward Manila, and the Allied forces on Luzon withdrew to the Bataan Peninsula, Battery A, 91st Coast Artillery, remained on Corregidor and was hard at work with something else, replanting those minefields. You see, a mine expert on General MacArthur's staff arrived on Corregidor in mid-December. He discovered that many of the mines that the 91st had laid the summer before were inoperative due to corroded cables that were operating them. Thus, members of Battery A spent much of December replanting the minefields. Some members of Battery A were probably in the process of replanting mines just before noon on December 29, 1941, when an air raid sounded on Corregidor. The men paid little attention, having become accustomed to sirens being precautionary rather than alerting to an actual threat. Eyewitnesses state that many of the more than 10,000 servicemen on the island moved to better positions from which to watch the large enemy V formation made up of 18 Japanese twin-engine heavy bombers and 19 Zero fighter planes. The men speculated on the intended target, thinking it was probably something near Manila or on Bataan. But the men were wrong. That large formation was headed for Corregidor. Historian Lewis Morton wrote, One officer was in the concrete building on topside which housed USA FFE headquarters, mounted to the second floor for a clearer view of the proceedings. 
Hardly had he arrived there when he heard an ominous whirring whistle which rapidly increased in crescendo. He made a wild jump for the stairway, later claiming that the whistle of my descent must have rivaled that of the falling bomb. Others were equally surprised and displayed a tendency to head for the corners of the rooms, where they fancied they were safer than elsewhere. Fortunately, windows and entrances had been sandbagged and broken glass caused few casualties. As the Japanese formation neared the island, it broke into smaller groupings that passed over the full length of the island from tail to head and back again, dropping more than 50 225 and 500 pound bombs in half an hour. The first bombs hit the hospital, which thankfully was already empty, and they splintered wooden structures that dotted topside. The Japanese pilots focused on the headquarters buildings and barracks on the topside and middle side areas, including the barracks occupied by Marcos and the other single men of Battery A. Some bombs tore through three floors of concrete before exploding, leaving massive craters in the ground. The 4th Marines had arrived on the island just a day or two before, and they established themselves in those same concrete middle-side barracks. The Army men, perhaps including men of Battery A, 91st Coast Artillery, assured the Marines that the barracks were bomb-proof. A Marine officer later recalled, A feeling of safety and security came over us as we reached the rock. We were told it was impregnable, and that we had nothing to fear from Japanese attack. So the Marines and Army servicemen in the barracks had paid little attention to the air raid warning, thinking they were housed in bomb-proof barracks. Then a bomb hit directly on the second and third floors. One man on the first floor heard the explosion, felt cement dust rain down on him, then looked up to see blue sky through the hole in the ceiling. Another officer remembered, Bombs screaming to earth with shattering explosions, crack of anti-aircraft guns, the neat plop-plop of the AA shells bursting all over the sky. There we were, a whole regiment flat on our bellies on the lower deck of Middleside Barracks. Allied anti-aircraft forces scrambled to their gun batteries. Not for nothing had they trained and practiced and honed their anti-aircraft and machine gun skills. An anti-aircraft division from Chicago brought down three Japanese bombers. This initial attack lasted half an hour. But there was no respite because moments later, a second wave hit. This one with 22 Japanese light bombers and 18 dive bombers. The light bombers flew the same route, dropping bombs on the same military targets as the heavy bombers had. The bombs destroyed the island's officers club, leaving only the foundation as a testament to its prior existence. Bombs exploded buildings made of corrugated iron and sent metal fragments as dangerous as bomb shrapnel flying in all directions. The dive bombers dropped 35-pound bombs from just 3,000 feet. To Marcos and Vicente, though, the planes seemed to be on level with the island's trees. And fighter planes swooped low to strafe the island, but their low altitude meant gun batteries could hit them with 50 caliber machine guns, and they brought down at least four planes during those strafing runs. Marcos would later tell his son, Jesse, about the bombings. He talked about a lot of the bombings. When the Japanese aircraft flew over the islands of the buildings, Kurigoro was one the ones they hit quite often. And then they had to go in the tunnels and hide for a while, and then back out into the, their battery uh, location. He said that really hurt his ears, getting hit by that bombardment. 
The third wave of bombers came at 1 p.m. 60 Japanese naval planes arrived and bombed the island and surrounding area for an hour. Altogether, the planes dropped about 60 tons of bombs during the two hours of attack. Despite the attack's intensity, relatively few targets of military importance on Corregidor were destroyed. A couple of gun batteries were damaged and the power, communications, and water lines as well. But the damage was rather minor and fixed within 24 hours. 20 Allied men were killed and 80 wounded. After that initial bombing, attitudes on Corregidor changed quickly. No longer were men running to get a better view of the enemy formations. As a couple of survivors put it, All of us were too careless of bombs and bullets at first. Now they all stampede for the nearest cover and get as far under it as possible. Vicente and Marcos had good reason to run for cover. Over the next week, they were bombed intermittently. Then, on January 2nd, 1942, Japanese air forces began a five-day assault, quote, during which hardly a yard of the island did not feel the effects of the enemy bombs, close quote. There was a pattern to these attacks. Photo Joe, the nickname Allied servicemen and women gave the Japanese reconnaissance plane, would circle over Corregidor for a time. At 12.30 p.m., the bombers arrived, flying above the reach of the anti-aircraft guns, and bombed the island for two hours. Then they'd fly off. The damage for this five-day stretch of bombings was extensive. Two water tanks on topside were eradicated, which was especially detrimental because there was little fresh water on the island. The docks and infrastructure at Bottomside, including the town there, were all but destroyed. A barge caught fire and drifted ashore into a diesel oil dump. The Fort Mills Fire Department couldn't handle the bomb-created fires, and building materials, medical supplies, and many other needed items were destroyed when the wooden buildings they were housed in burned. Then, on January 6, the bombing stopped. That was the day that fighting began on Bataan. General Homa, the commander of all Japanese forces in the Philippines during this time, had expected to put Corregidor Island out of commission fairly easily. But he was wrong, and by the time the Battle of Bataan began in early January, Japanese Imperial Military Command needed their air forces for attacks in Thailand. Thus, for the next two months, Corregidor Island was left alone, for the most part. Occasional raids of three to four planes dive-bombed or strafed the island. However, the Japanese moved their coast artillery guns into the Cavite province, directly across the bay from Corregidor. And those artillery guns could reach Corregidor, although hits were sporadic and didn't cause much damage. No, the real issue was the annoyance factor. Historian J. Michael Miller wrote, Japanese harassing artillery fires conducted every 25 to 30 minutes throughout the night caused the Marines to dub the annoying cannon Insomnia Charlie. With the majority of above-ground infrastructure damaged, life on Corregidor became almost mole-like with barracks, headquarters, and nearly everything else moving underground. It was a monotonous existence. Men were either preparing fortifications, repairing damage, or bored and food, medical, and other supplies were becoming scarce. However, Marcos and Vicente, being part of a north-facing battery, did have something else to keep them busy, aiming for targets on Bataan. 
which you'll recall was just a couple miles north of Corregidor. The men of Battery A moved two 155mm guns up a hill to form a new battery called Stockade. From this position and Battery Morrison, they inflicted heavy damage on Baton. The guns in Battery Morrison were in fixed positions, mounted on a concrete pedestal. I believe the guns at Battery Stockade were portable, i.e. on wheels, since they were pushed up there, likely by trucks or tractors. At 28,000 pounds or 13,000 kilograms, those guns definitely weren't pushed uphill by humans alone. I found little additional information about Battery Stockade, and I suspect the reason is because it was created during the war and seems to have been destroyed not long afterward. The guns Battery A moved up the hill to Stockade were very likely World War I-era French-designed guns called Canon de 155 GPF. They were produced in the United States starting in 1917. These guns had 20-foot slash 5.9-meter long barrels. They fired 155-millimeter shells, that's 6.1 inches, and could fire two rounds per minute. They had a maximum firing range of around 12 miles or 19 kilometers. Thus, the Allied forces on Bataan could use the north-facing Corregidor artillery like Battery Morrison and Battery Stockade to target and bomb Japanese positions on the peninsula. Jesse recalls having conversations about the war with his grandfather and father. They used to talk about fighting Japanese and all that from a uh, conversation I, I had with him when he was still alive. He just talked about bits and pieces. One example of such fighting was during the so-called naval battalions fight against Japanese invaders in southern Bataan in what became known as the Battle of the Points. On the night of January 25th, the naval battalion asked the Corregidor artillery for help eliminating an enemy landing force on Longoscawayan Point, which is on the very southwestern part of Bataan and was well behind American lines. The batteries began shelling at midnight and into the next day. This was, quote, their first real shoot of the war, close quote, because the enemy position was way out of the gun's range before. It was also, apparently, quote, the first hostile heavy caliber American coast artillery fire since the Civil War, close quote. The artillery men had been impatiently waiting orders to open fire on the Japanese, and they showed how good their training was. They hit their targets dead on, and a Bataan lookout reported that the first shells to hit Longoscawayan Point started such large fires, he could no longer see the target. A Japanese soldier later wrote, We were terrified. We could not see where the big shells or bombs were coming from. They seemed to be falling from the sky. Before I was wounded, my head was going round and round, and I didn't know what to do. Some of my companions jumped off the 100-foot-tall cliff to escape the terrible fire. By the way, I cover the story of the Naval Battalion in episode 13 about Frank Bridget, it's one of my all-time favorite World War II stories about Navy men quickly turned into infantry soldiers and fought a little-known battle that may have prevented Bataan's early demise. After Bataan fell on April 9, 1942, Japanese forces turned their full attention to Corregidor Island. The island was the last bastion of hope and freedom in the Philippines, the home of the Allied Forces Philippine headquarters and top brass, and once it fell, 
all Allied forces in the Philippines would be surrendered. For the next month, the island was subject to constant artillery and aircraft bombardment. But on the morning of May 6, Japanese ground forces landed on the island. By mid-afternoon, the American flag was lowered, replaced with a white flag. Marcos and Vicente were now prisoners of war, and Jesse shares a unique story of his father's actions that day. He said he escaped and stole a Navy motorboat, and said by the time I reached the beach, it was full of Japanese. And he said he got caught there and wasn't turning in school for at least three weeks. And he said they fed us bowl of rice and brown sugar. Only fed them uh, twice a day. And then he escaped again. And they captured him and went to uh, jail. Kept them there for a month or something like that. And then he got transferred to uh, Camp O'Donnell. I saw his name there on the monument. I find it amazing that the Japanese didn't kill Marcos for the escape attempts. Other POWs were killed for much more minor infractions. And his experience during the early days as a POW was quite different from that of other Filipinos captured on Corregidor, including his father, Vicente. The Japanese soldiers rounded up all the American and Filipino POWs on Corregidor and marched them a few miles to a beach location on the tail known as the 92nd Garage. The area had several garages, which were actually seaplane hangars. The area was roughly the size of 13 American football fields grouped together. And for the next three weeks, it became Vicente's home, along with the 11 to 14,000 American and Filipino POWs who were also captured on Corregidor. A shallow well was the only water source, and that went dry after a dozen or so buckets full were drawn. The Japanese laid a small pipe to the area, but it offered little relief from the constant thirst. The Japanese didn't give the POWs food, so they had to scrounge through their belongings looking for food supplies they already had, and forage in the jungle for more. The POWs crowded together under small bits of canvas to escape the sun. Other POWs sought protection by standing in seawater up to their necks in the little cove where the garage area met the water. POWs also bathed there, and many POWs used the cove to relieve themselves. Soon, the water was foul and polluted. In early June, Vicente Macoro and the other Filipino Corregidor POWs were sent to Camp O'Donnell. This is the camp where the Bataan Death March had ended. It was a sick-infested camp with little water, shelter, or other basic needs. By the time Vicente and Marcos arrived there, the American Bataan Death March survivors had been transferred out of camp. Jesse recalls his father Marcos talking about Camp O'Donnell. He said he really got uh, beat up by the Japanese. For one of the punishments, they would get two by fours on him on his back. Imagine getting hit by a two by four. The Japanese military decided to release all the Filipino POWs because they didn't have resources to house and feed them. I don't know exactly when Marcos and Vicente were freed, but it would have been sometime in the later end of 1942, because by January 1943, all Filipino POWs who survived O'Donnell had been freed. Most of the POWs were sent to their hometowns. Vicente's post-release wartime experiences aren't known. I couldn't find out much about my grandfather. He just mentioned they was captured, and that's about it. it they could kind of lost touch during the war. 
and I haven't been able to find information about his wartime experiences either. However, liberation for a determined man like Marcos didn't include going back home. Jesse told me, He decided to join the guerrillas. He just said, oh, I just went with a bunch of former Filipino military or scouts. He said they were led by some Americans or sometimes some Filipino officers. He said one time they, they uh, tried to uh, blow up a bank because the headquarters of the Japanese was on top of the bank. And at the time, he mentioned that my mother was working there. She didn't know uh, my mother at the time. She was a teller and they tried to blow the bank. I verified that with my mother. Yeah, I was at the bank your dad tried to blow up. They didn't want to hurt the civilians on the first floor. So they had to figure a way to take care of the Japanese on top of the second floor. So they did something at night or something like that. The first time they tried it, they tried it during the daytime, but the second time they tried it, they did it at night. So they limit civilian casualties. Neither Jesse nor I know where this bank was located or what guerrilla group Marcos joined. That was a bit frustrating for Jesse. He didn't mention about locations and all that where that happened. Because I was kind of curious, too, where that place was located, if it was still there or not. Because when I went back to the Philippines, I wanted to uh, retrace some of the areas. Marcos remained with the guerrillas until war's end, and then he was given an option. They, they gave the former Filipino scouts a, a chance to decide if they want to join the regular U.S. Army or stay home with the regular Army or become civilians in the Philippines. My dad took the latter. He went to join the U.S. Army. Shortly after war's end, Marcos met a bank teller who had worked at the bank his guerrillas tried to blow up. She was a 24-year-old named Domaleta Mondanito. He saw her at uh, some function or something like that and tried to, uh, in those days, court her. He would take his uh, guitar and go out there and, you know, serenade and all that. <laughs> Which we, no, nobody does now. Well, his courting worked because on May 2nd, 1946, 27-year-old Marcos married Domaleta in Manila. The next year, their first child was born. They named him Jesse. And he, of course, is the son you've been hearing from throughout this episode. After some time training in the United States, Marcos was sent to Korea where another war, or conflict as it was deemed, was waging. While there, a shell exploded near Marcos and a piece of shrapnel embedded itself in his ear. The explosion also broke one of his thumbs, which caused a bone infection. He remained in a Korean field hospital for two months and returned to active duty. After coming to the United States, Marcos began going by the name of Mark. In November 1951, his wife, Domaleta, and their son, Jesse, arrived in San Francisco, en route to Fort Ord, where Mark was stationed at the time. Mark and his family spent the 1950s and 60s moving from station to station, including in Barstow, California, and in Germany. It was a very nice dad uh, when I was growing up. He was more fatherly, and he uh, enjoyed being with the children, my siblings, when we were growing up. When he was deployed, my mom had to take over the head of the household. When he came back from deployment, we all ran to my dad, and we did a normal thing, hugged him, and, you know, Wish him that he was uh, glad to be home and all that. We had to stay in New York City about a year and a half before we got sent over to uh, be with my dad in uh, Europe. 
I remember when we, uh, my dad was supposed to be transported to Fort Lewis, and then we came back from Germany and we went to New York, and we drove from New York to Tacoma in the wintertime. First time my dad did that. He said he'll never do it again. <laughs> In 1965, after nearly 28 years of military service, Mark retired from the U.S. Army and took a civilian job at the Family Housing Division at Fort Lewis and McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington, which is where his family settled. Mark was a determined man, but he also struggled with a familiar post-war issue. He has a goal that he tries to attain it if he can. <laughs> I knew that when I was going out with him. He had a project or he had a task to do, so I'm going to finish that. That's where I got mine to. He was suffering from PTSD most of his life. So he, he was still, you know, having uh, recalling battle scenes and stuff like that. Back in 1947, two years after the war's end, Mark's father Vicente concluded his own military career, retiring from the U.S. Army with the rank of sergeant after 37 years of service. A couple years after that, Vicente remarried. His first wife and Mark's mother, Bernardina, had passed away sometime before 1945. 63-year-old Vicente married 44-year-old Vincenta Pagliette in November 1949. Vicenta was Bernardina's sister. 20 years later, in August 1967, Vicente's wife Vincenta arrived in Seattle, Washington, her and Vicente's daughter had come to the city the previous October. I don't know when Vicente arrived, but he did immigrate to Seattle, Washington, where he would spend the remainder of his years. In December 1975, Vicente wrote to the commanding officer of Fort Lewis near Tacoma. A newspaper article reported, Macaro, a retired Army sergeant, expressed his wish to be an Army captain in a letter to the commander of the 9th Infantry Division at Fort Lewis. The commander recognized Officer Tambor and Sergeant Macaro, and a dream came true. On Friday, May 28, 1976, the beginning of Memorial Day weekend, 90-year-old Vicente attended a ceremony at Fort Lewis. The local newspaper provided coverage. By the time Vicente Macaro retired from the Army in 1947, he had been a sergeant for 25 years. But he always wanted to be a captain. Friday, he got his wish. Macaro, 90, not only got a pair of captain's bars, but also an appointment as an honorary battery commander. Another article shared, Vicente Macoro yesterday took command of his first artillery battery. For Macoro, yesterday's ceremony was the reward for a life devoted to the military, to a U.S. Army he joined first in 1910, and from which he retired 29 years ago. I'm very glad that I can again serve my country, Vicente told the newspaper. He also told the paper that he planned to live to be 100 years old. Nonetheless, time is unyielding, and on February 24, 1981, at the age of 94, Vicente succumbed to cardiac arrest at the VA Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. He was laid to rest at Calvary Cemetery in Seattle. His wife and four children, including Mark, survived him. Around the time of his father's death, 62-year-old Mark retired from his civilian job at Fort Lewis, but retirement didn't stop his work. He enjoyed working in the Filipino community. He started uh, a lot of community uh, organizations after he retired. He was involved with church. He helped build a church where uh, we, we grew up at. 
He enjoyed doing volunteer work. Since at least the mid-1970s, Marcos had been involved with various Filipino and Philippine scout societies, roles he increased participation in after retirement. He would become president of the Amphil Brotherhood Society, commander of the American ex-POW's Tacoma chapter, commander of the Veterans of Foreign War post-1428, and president of the Philippine Scout Heritage Society, Captain Jose Calugas chapter. You may recall Captain Jose Calugas' story from episode 19. Calugas was the only Filipino to receive the Medal of Honor during World War II. On October 4, 1997, Marcos passed away from lung cancer in his home in Lakewood, Washington, leaving behind a family of six children, ten grandchildren, and one great-granddaughter. Today he rests at Mountain View Memorial Park in Tacoma, alongside his beloved wife, Damaletta, who passed away a decade later in 2007. Vicente and Mark Mokoro, a father and son who devoted much of their lives to the Coast Artillery's motto, we defend. And, after defending their homeland from atrocious invasion and imperial rule, came to the United States to live their version of the American dream. And today, we honor them for their service and their sacrifices. Back on Corregidor in early 1942, while Mark and Vicente were manning the large artillery guns and assisting as best they could with the fight on baton, the Corregidor Marines were hard at work setting up beach defenses in preparation for a ground invasion of the island. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Mark and Vicente Macoro's stories on the Left Behind Facebook page and website, and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you'll know when I drop a new episode and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Paul Sutherland, Mike Davis, and Tyler Harmon. Special thanks to Jesse Macoro for his time, information, and pictures, without which I could not have told his father and grandfather's story. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next time with the 4th Marines on Corregidor Island. Mm-hmm.